Hello, my name is Kayla. And my name is Jackie, and this is season two of Living Two or More. A podcast where we interview people who are biracial and multiracial. Their stories are beautifully complex and unique. We were honored to receive them and so excited to share them with you. Thanks for listening and enjoy Living Two or More. In this episode, we have a conversation with Neeland Fitzgerald. Neeland is a program manager for Avanta, a Gartner company. He holds a BA in art history from Portland State University and a master's of professional studies from Pratt Institute in sustainable design management. For fun, Neeland loves concerts, museums, traveling, reading, and being with friends and family. He describes himself as a city boy with a hippie heart and a lifelong learner. He also happens to be my baby brother. In this episode, we talk about themes like identity and ambiguity, identity as a social construct that is ever-changing and evolving. Enjoy the episode. We want to first thank you, Neelan, for being on Living Two or More. Um, We are really excited to chat with you and talk to you a little bit more about yourself and your story. Um, But first, we kind of like to kick off the the episode by asking everyone kind of the same question, and that would be um, describe your experience of living two or more racial identities. Describe my experience of living two or more racial identities. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast, uh, first off. And um, my experience living two or more racial identities has been one of um, ambiguity for the majority of my life. And as I've come of age and we gain a little bit more awareness of our ancestry, Jackie and I, um, it's become a little bit clearer uh, in terms of like what sort of racial background I have, um, what sort of, I guess, ethnic and ancestry that we have. But, um, you know, as I'm going to be sort of talking to you, a lot of that ambiguity is something that I've learned to embrace over the course of time and really celebrate and affirm for myself as a multiracial man uh, or multiracial queer man. And I do align it with other parts of my identity. So be it my sexual orientation, my gender, um, my race is sort of categorized in the same social construct as some of those other things. So Um, And I can give you a little bit more nuance into that, but that's, I guess, my answer is my experience has been one of of, of ambiguity. Yeah. Yeah. And we probably should share that Neil is my little brother. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so um, it's like really cool to have a sibling perspective because I think like Neil and my experience of our identities specifically our racial identities with an adopted father um, is, is they're different. Mm -hmm. Um, They're really different. And so we're really excited to hear. And I'm really excited to even just learn from you too, about what your experience has been and kind of a different context. Sure. So, yeah. And I mean, like, I'm excited to sort of, I guess, vocalize this. A lot of this is kind of like a an emotional purge or like sort of my, my thought process that I've been able to maybe write in my journal or things that I've just thought about over the course of time for a long time. So I'm happy I get to kind of like you use you guys as my impromptu therapists <laughs> and, uh, and kind of like lay it all out. 
I do think about most of my identity sort of from a historical context, you know, when it comes to um, you know, social paradigms and social constructs, how we've come to know race and sexual orientation and gender and other, you know, major things that we default to believe are true and real, when in reality, in my opinion, those things are pretty much in flux and more fluid in nature all the time and change all the time. So um, would love to add like some level of like historical context, not to give like your listeners a history lesson or anything, but I'm interested in just like pointing out where those types of, um, I guess, default assumptions come from so that we can like emphasize the importance of get, kind of getting back to, um, or I guess in my opinion, to rejecting some of them um, in a way to like maybe find a greater consciousness. So. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Definitely. So, I mean, uh, the main piece that I wanted to highlight is the Enlightenment, like, so the 17th and 18th centuries. And that's really where there's this rejection of, like, attributing natural phenomenon to holy intervention. So, like, plants grow because God made plants grow. And that was literally what people thought. And there was no real explanation for, you know, photosynthesis. And photosynthesis was, it developed in, the, I think, 17th century. So just to kind of like take that example and apply it to other things that we are able to name because of science, um, we begin to categorize and archive and define things in order to study them, in order to have a conversation about them, in order to find some commonality um, through the 17th and 18th centuries. And there's this rejection of, um, you know, sort of a religious explanation uh, in, in leaning towards a more secular um, outlook on life. So that's really driven by scientists, but also by artists, because in the 19th century, we get this realization that with this categorization and like, um, and this um, organization of nature, um, we're really pushing the bounds of what we're able to achieve in terms of ingenuity, in terms of industry, and are like thinking about how we perceive the world. And so we get things like the locomotive, we get things like photography, and there's a recognition that there's actually a, um, there's a reality associated with nature, things that like we believe to be true in our life. And then there's a sort of layered understanding of nature that we use language for. So, things like photosynthesis are new. You know, it didn't really exist prior to that. Homosexuality, heterosexuality is new. That Those things didn't exist prior to the 19th century. So um, these new concepts are meant to categorize people and meant to um, help us have a conversation with one another about you know, who we are, our identities, what we do, how we behave. Um, there's, sort of a there's sort of a sociological aspect to it that people will champion over time. But this understanding of a reality, what, ha what occurs in nature versus like how we define that reality, um, our you know, envisioning of what 
homosexuality, heterosexuality is, is um, a social construct. It's something that we have placed onto nature in order to um, sort of make it more palatable for the general public. So the, the parallel there for artists is like, prior to the 19th century, the goal for artists was really to create um, an illusion of reality uh, through painting. So like tricking your eye into believing that you're looking through a window into another realm, right? So like mm -hmm. the Renaissance, you're thinking of like achieving that perfect anatomy of someone or like really tricking your eye into believing that like church ceilings are opening up into heaven, right? And people like literally saw that as like you know, the, the heights of art. And then, in the and then in the 19th century, late 19th century, around the turn of the century, we get Impressionism. And there's this um, group of artists, the Impressionists, who decide that like, we want to reject some of those rules and purposefully emphasize the thingness of the object. So it's a screen with paint on it instead of a window into another realm. Mm -hmm. And that is a recognition um, of the reality or the, the, the object that is sort of in parallel with this, um, with this new realization that the enlightenment brought us. That like, you know, we're just kind of categorizing things based on what we, what we know. And as we evolve, like we can place names on things. Um, and what we see in the 20th century is this real uh, preoccupation with understanding everything being able to have certainty about everything. And the internet only really heightened that obsession. Um, so when it comes to identity, um, you know, it, it sort of manifests in interesting and kind of funny ways. Like I think the full, uh, the full acronym for L the LGBTQ community is like 24 different letters. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a little bit ridiculous at the end of the day where you're like, oh, this is really nuanced. This is something that like, uh, we see so much more diversity for people say things like the gay community. And it's like, what exactly does that mean? It's much more diverse in nature and much more um, complex in nature. So the in essence, like, it would be nice if people or I guess the work uh, moving forward in order to kind of maybe unite us as a country and maybe avoid a civil war in the future is to look at our commonalities, you know, our shared experience, um, rather than, you know, these sort of distinctions and identity, um, in order to categorize and discriminate against other people, because that's really where caste systems come from is like one group of people saying I'm superior to another group of people. That's right. I mean, um, the whole like construct of race took place was was because it became a justification for genocide, colonization and oppression like and slavery. Um, like that's actually why race became the thing that we talk about now as race. It was used as a leverage point for, yeah, justifying that. Um, essentially. Yeah. So I have so many questions for you because you're kind of coming from this like like I'll, like I kind of want to name it like a Eurocentric art history yeah, point of view. Yeah. Um, so like, I think that's significant to kind of note that it's like other cultures 100 a Western yeah, have a view. Different, yes. Yeah. Well, and, and then, there's, there's a, there's an assimilation and a colonization and a colonist like perspective to slant on everything I just said, you know, like where we Western civilization, you know, took, the land and killed the people 
of other countries, um, indigenous people who looked at nature in a completely different way and continue to look at nature in a completely different way. Um, and so that power or like those wars and that those genocides really amounted to our current perception of the world where like the dominant power dictates the way in which we think about identities mm-hmm. um and that includes race so because there's a there and, and that you know has a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that there, it's a political agenda to perpetuate that perception because it's it's you know it keeps the people in power in power mm-hmm. so. so you mentioned earlier like you had kind of a, a journey of understanding and have come and like it, while it's been ambiguous, it's still a journey of understanding your racial identity. Can you like talk more and more specifically about that? Like, what did it look like when you were younger to understand racial yeah. identity? Like middle school, high school, through college. Like, how did yeah. that evolve? So we, I, I for I, for me personally, I feel like we grew up in a very white neighborhood, um, a, a very white um, environment that um, I was immersed in and probably treated as an outsider, but I was oblivious to a lot of that isolation. Um, I felt more isolated due to my queer identity, probably more than I did my race. Um, And I definitely felt that there was a, a consistent pattern in the way that people would meet me. So like a lot of times people ask me, you know, different questions that kind of manifest in different ways. Like when you're asking a rude question, people don't know how to phrase it properly. And so it's like, what's your nationality? What are you? Um, What's your ethnicity is I think the correct way to go if you're going to ask the question. Um, But, you know, and then that became consistent. People were always really interested in knowing what my background was and you know, my answer was, I'm not 100% sure my dad was adopted. And um, I remember specific instances in which people were really taken aback by that, like didn't have um, a good way to communicate with me, didn't have a pathway to communicate with me based on the fact that like, they didn't know my ethnic background. Mm -hmm. Um, Because people are, I think, kind of tied to that piece in their lives. And so with that ambiguity and with that mm, sort of like missing piece in my background, I feel I was brought up culturally in a white, you know, household. I don't have a lot of ties to like, you know, my father was adopted from Korea. I don't have a lot of like cultural ties to Korea. I, I don't have like a lot of, um, uh, traditions that I follow that are Korean, very interested in all cultures. Um, but was raised in, and, and I guess assimilated into a very like white, um, upper middle-class family. So, um, my experience, that's, I guess the most, mm, like, that's the most obvious example I can give is when people meet me, the overwhelming majority of time that comes up as Mm -hmm question whereas i don't see that question being asked a in other countries that that often and b like among white people that often just to further what jackie had mentioned like how then did you kind of get to the place where you are now and feeling like comfort 
in ambiguity and yeah yeah what what is that what did that process look like to today well i'll i'll tell you a lot of my closest friends have never really asked me that question it's not important to them yeah they're interested in knowing me as a person and like my personality and you know we have a mutual connection in which you know we share uh, and give and take information and we learn from one another and respect one another because of things outside of our race um what we talk about identity a lot and um i don't like begrudge anyone for asking me that question per se but it's certainly something that like puts that their priorities that it makes it makes it clear what their priorities are when they're when they're talking to me um out of and i mean who knows what those intentions are it's very difficult to say um and i'm sure the overwhelming majority majority of them do not mean any harm. Um, However, it is something that I notice uh, and it's something that's happened consistently throughout my whole life. I'm so curious, like, what does that, what does that communicate to you? Like, I'm curious what, because I feel like I know what you mean. It's like when someone is asking you Mm -hmm. that, it's like some, there's like a, there's like an invisible communication that's happening. Like what, what is getting communicated to you when that happens? And like, does it depend on who's asking you? definitely depends on who's asking me and how long I've known that person. Mm -hmm. So like maybe if one of my really close friends who I've known for years, you know, wanted to have a conversation about my background or my ethnicity, it would be a lot less of a, I guess, threat or a threatening conversation to me than someone who I just met and they're like, what are you? Uh, (laughs) So, you know, it really does depend on the context, the intent, um, And, you know, I kind of get into this explanation with them if they're open to having the conversation about, like, why that is important and, like, our obsession with um, certainty in our culture. And that, like, it may be helpful if people embraced ambiguity and embraced a level of chaos in their lives, because that's a little bit more aligned with how nature is and also how aligned with how race is and how sexual orientation and gender are. So, um it's not like uh, at, it's not like I have one piece or one race that I am. It's a it's a multitude of different um, types of you know background. I can get my DNA test if I want, mm-hmm. um, but I choose not to because like again, I'm kind of like I'm wanting to um, I wanting I'm wanting to continue to feel comfortable in that ambiguity. Um, yeah, you and I. I'm, are... I'm, 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 I'm a champion of of not of not knowing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We are so enthusiastic unknown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are so we're so for like for listeners, we are so different that way. Like I yes. have been kind of consumed and at times obsessed with understanding where our family comes from and our stories yes. and our ancestry and understanding like where the things that I feel in my body originate from in our lineage and in our storylines. And mm-hmm. Neil's Neil's approach to it has been so different. Um, but I, right. I, I am curious, like, where, where do you feel like, do you at all feel any affinity or connection to your racial or ethnic identity? Background? Background? Yeah. Identity? 
I've always wondered, like, if I ever tried to learn Korean, if it would come, like, more naturally to me than other languages mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. Like, yeah. if there's something in our in our, in our our bloodline that, like, mm-hmm. maybe would make me more receptive to that way of thinking. Yeah. Um, who knows, right? I mean, like, it's something that I would be curious to explore. That's really the only piece, though, mm-hmm. um, I guess, like, is the language or, like, you know, I think that's a good sort of pathway into another culture. So, I mean, I would... I, I'd be curious to know. I'd also love to visit Seoul or, you know, another p- part of Korea um, just to see, like, you know, if anything resonates in a different way. I mean, who knows? I've never been to the country. So, um, you know, again, like, it's it's kind of like religion in me. You know, I'm enthusiastically agnostic, don't know. Um, I identify as queer, so it's not really a, I don't identify as gay. So it's not really a, a steadfast, like, kind of thing. Being queer sort of opens up a larger umbrella of different types of, of, of identities. And I kind of feel the same way about race, since I am a multiracial man. Like, um, I know that it's sort of a long history of um, colonization and war and adoption and, like, bringing babies overseas and having one of them die and, like, there's a longer story, a more nuanced story there of like what happened in order to, I guess, lead to my birth mm-hmm. um, that I would be more interested in knowing um, those stories rather than just like maybe placing a blank blanket default on Korean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. No, definitely. I think like, I think we're kind of in a time where, and you mentioned it, like where we're, people are, talking a lot about like their own personal like experience with race and like I wonder like have you ever like met have you been met with like a little bit resistance of your your like uh feeling towards ambiguity and not really wanting to like pinpoint and have to name who you are to anyone at any time like what how has that been well Jackie's never made me feel that way yeah you know and like we kind of like you know like she said earlier have a kind of different approach to the way in in which we view our ethnicity. She's never made me feel like I was wrong to, to take this approach or that like I, I should do anything. Um, So, you know, we both respect one another's opinion. I learn a lot from her. I respect her. And I think like we kind of have that same vibe. We've had that same vibe for most of our adulthood. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's not something that I ever feel pressure from her on. And then I guess for other people, they don't care enough to push that piece. Um, I don't think that like, I think, I I think that people, at least in my, in my circles, um, don't have this sort of dogmatic approach to their identities where like, you know, even the trans people who I know, um, are really sympathetic to people who use the wrong pronouns for them. Um, it's not something that really bothers them as much as, as, I, as it does maybe other trans people if mm-hmm. there's a mistake made. Mm-hmm. You know, they try to create smaller safe spaces for especially people who are new in their lives. Um, and I think that's the way to go. You know, mm-hmm. have compassion for people, assu- default to a, a good assumption that, like, people are trying, you know. And... Uh, that's the way that it, it goes with me too. If people, I've, I've had people come up and just speak to me in Spanish before. So, um, you know, I try to just like take a moment and try to say in Spanish that I don't speak Spanish fluently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. You know, it's totally. It's all of that. I also kind of sorry, Jackie. Um, no, I also kind of like the when you were talking about other people coming up to you and like asking you what are you, and then like leaving them with like discomfort of not mm -hmm. telling them. And I kind of like that too. It's like you don't know what journey I'm on or the the things that I um, I perceive myself or I am who I am to you. And I kind of mm -hmm. like that sometimes you have to leave people in this discomfort of like, well, maybe you don't need to know, you know, or maybe I'm still trying to figure it out. Yes, I love that. Um, it's kind of like, it's like the equivalent to castrating, like for, for like in feminism, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I'm going to take that back. And actually that's mine. Uh, I was also, I've, I've recently read a book that um, by, um, Michelle Zahner, who I actually went to high school with. She was a year below me. It's like a New York Times bestseller. She's also the lead singer of a band called Japanese Breakfast. Crying in H-Mart. Yeah, Crying in Crying H -Mart. in H-Mart, yeah. exactly. And her, the whole point of that book is really to like channel her grief from her mother dying of cancer into like an exploration of Korean food. And like, um, I feel like if our parents or if specific, specifically my father had like a lot more of a tie to Korea, then I would be more immersed and like, um, and enthusiastic about exploring that, that background as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but since, you know, he, my father was, you know, brought up in a farm town with, with my mother who was also brought up in the same small farm town that we have a picture of them in second grade together in Canby, Oregon. Oh. Uh, but like, you know, he was like the only brown boy in like a population of like 1500 people in the fifties when like no one was adopting people. So like, it's kind of a unique experience in being raised culturally as a white man in a farm town. And then like going to a place like West Point where it's even more emphasized how correct quote unquote um, Western uh, perspectives of, of, of life are. Um, so, you know, he's raising people, he's raising us, Jackie and I, with the tools that he has, mm -hmm. right? And so then Jackie and I grow up as adults and we can reflect on our experience from the perception of an adopted brown man who was raised in a white community and then sort of like, I guess, had this culture, culture, these cultural experiences that were ingrained in him um, over the course of so long. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, were the product of, of, uh, of that level of, you know, I guess, ambiguity is the word again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, so, um, you know, uh, recently our father took a DNA test um, last year and we found... Puerto Rican family who actually, um, you know, we've met uh, our uncle, who's my dad's half brother. And uh, I'm really curious about that. Like, how do you, um, how do you view our Puerto Rican roots and that part of our father's story? I haven't, I guess, uh, I, I view it the same as our Korean um, ancestry. In that, like, it's a part of a big mixed grab bag, a hodgepodge, so to speak, of uh, different uh, different influences in my DNA, different influences in my uh, in my genetic makeup. Um, and in terms of having new family, you know, like 
that's just like sort of new members to the party. Like a lot mm-hmm. of our family is, uh, uh, we have a we have a pretty tight knit extended family as well as like immediate family. Um, and so I, the more the merrier. I mean, I'm really excited by those new discoveries. And I think it's really significant to my father because he, you know, due to the military and sort of like having all of this random like be it be a man things like in his life hasn't really come to terms with some of those identity things that I think most adoptees go through so that was I think a great awakening for him and you know he's cultivating more relationships with people in his family which Mm -hmm. he hasn't really had before so Mm -hmm. yeah definitely it's been really cool to witness and be along for the ride um yeah so I can I'm going to push a little bit because I I can imagine that there are some people listening to this who maybe don't show up in the world as ethnically ambiguous as maybe we do or some multiracial and biracial folks do um, who, and it's kind of two part who are like some of whom who are probably like, Oh, that must be nice to walk around in the world and like not have a social construct immediately placed on you. Right. Um, But then also, like, well, actually, I guess I'll just start with that first. Like, what do you think, like, how do you think about that? Like, how do you think about this idea of, because it borders on like the 90s color blindness thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's what you're saying, but I'm curious, like, how you no, absolutely. think about that and well, how I like think systems it's a, of oppression. It's actually the opposite where like, I want to complex, I want to increase the complexity of people's identities and their racial background to the point where like there's more nuance involved. Um, But I guess like the focus of their identities could be on things like intersectionality. So like, for example, um, you know, you say someone's, uh, in reality, when when you meet someone, most people are ethnically mixed, right? Like a lot of, like most people have varying genetic makeup inside of them that comes from, you know, generations and generations before them, you know, of, of mixed people, of, of mixed races and mixed backgrounds. And so it's the recognition of that nuance um, that like, you know, even if you present as a white female, let's say, um, there's probably a little bit more, um, uh, more, to, more to say about that story than just, you know, she's a European white woman. Um, and it's very much the, and, and in terms of representation, that's very much in the same type of, um, I guess, disservice that we do to race that we do for gender. You know, like when it comes to trans people, how they're represented over the course of time, you know, either as sick or sad or psychologically damaged. Um, that's not the type of narrative that we should really be fostering moving forward as like, you know, more liberation and more, um, I guess, like human rights come their way, but also like, the trans body, the trans experience, like those things really vary. That's why it's kind of, it's a weird thing because like we used to use transsexual and transgender and like transvestite very, very like um, interchangeably and people wouldn't, you know, know what to use. Now it's sort of like a trans asterisk time where like the work comes with, you know, recognizing that People are very different and people like have and people's identities change and are in flux over the course of time. Um, when you look at it from a racial lens, um, I don't I don't think that like 
um, any one person is one race, right? I think like, and because like, again, race is something that we sort of default to as a way to categorize people. So, I mean, like, I would say that like, they have a, a, a varying degree of ancestry that I would want to know more about. Um, and that's the stories, those are the stories that I'm interested in. Yeah. But, and, and we're in such a time where people are so, I think especially, I mean, I don't know how to think about it, like geographically or like location wise, because I feel like we're in such, such times of change that it's really hard to know kind of what's going on culturally in any place, in any real way. Right. But like we are in times where I feel like where people like I'll be in group meetings or I'll be in a, a workshop or something and, and their racial identity is actually the thing that they lead with. Like they'll say their name and then they'll say their racial identity. And so, mm. yeah, what do you, like, what do you think about that? Because I think for some people it's, like, yeah. so near and dear to who they are. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious what, like, what you would say in a conversation with somebody who. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a preciousness associated with that, that, like, people, you know, um, really do attribute a, a huge piece of who they are as a person to their um, to their race, to their sexual orientation, to their gender. Um, and you know, that's their choice. That's a hundred percent. Okay. I think like, uh, celebrating and affirming people for being proud of their background is, uh, is amazing. That's the direction that we should definitely be taking. However, I wish that like just as much emphasis was placed on the things that unite us, you know, things that like are, are, are com- because like there's a there's there's a great piece of community and then there's sort of a downside of community you know it's like when you have other people who share your narrative and share your struggle you can empath- empathize with them and share and share in their struggle but at the same time you isolate people outside of that community who don't have the same experience and then it becomes this weird power dynamic and that's where we get into trouble with it's like oh well I'm more oppressed than you, or I'm actually better than you as a person. Um, and that's where, you know, I wish one of the great things that I've seen in the last, you know, half decade, you know, as we've gone through these like crazy political times and like people are reacting is this, um, amazing intersection between like racial justice and like queer liberation where like, you know, there's this emphasis on black trans women and we're recognizing that, okay, like, yeah, queers like didn't, weren't enslaved. There's, it's clearly a different, um, a a different path line, but like we can both, um, we can both relate to the idea of feeling marginalized or feeling othered. And those are the types of things that I wish like more people would talk about, you know, like, um, But I, and so, you know, I do use my pronouns, like when I'm in a business meeting, just because like, I want to raise awareness to other people about like the, um, the different varying forms that gender can take. So like, I could be a passing trans woman or a a passing trans man, you know, and they would maybe like not make those, or at least they could be more aware of like how I I want to be identified. So it's more of like an etiquette thing at this Mm -hmm. point, like, 
oh, okay, if I do refer to Neeland, I'm going to use he, him, his pronouns. Mm-hmm. So. I love that, like, normalizing of just that normalizing like that's just what I do in these spaces Mm -hmm. to like Mm -hmm. bring it to your consciousness and Mm I I I think it's so I love this point of view that you have because I have to be honest and say that like my views have also shifted in this way you know with my like 10 years doing social justice work where identity and really thinking about identities was at the forefront but just that like it's a both and like our social identities Mm -hmm. are and like we are influenced by an external world when we have social constructs period. Like we can't avoid the social construct container. It's something that the outside world puts on people Mm -hmm. and we are not only our social construct identities. Like we are so much more complex internally than that. And actually those internal parts of our identity are really what connect us and unite us across difference. And I'm also really called to like bring up I feel like Sonia Renee Taylor's work of radical self-love which is about like tearing down the ladder and I feel like so much of sometimes what we do with identities is we put them first and foremost like social construct identities we put them first and foremost in front of us and then do that for people that we meet and we actually end up perpetuating hierarchies Mm -hmm. like what you were saying before about like who's more oppressed than another person or who has more privilege than another person. And it's like, in what context are we talking about? And yeah. Yep. And we are still in the process of, you know, um, quantifying and, you know, applying data to people's identities. You know, like when I apply for any job, I have to check the box of like, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what like, you know, race you are. (laughs) And there is sometimes a mixed race option, um, but most of the time, they'll say something like Pacific Islander without Hispanic mm-hmm. um, heritage or something along those lines. It's like that list should be maybe like 25 or more. Um, like, I mean, it's just it's just bizarre to me that like they list maybe five options for people. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and and I think like, you know, that is a way it, for organizations, for capitalism to like um, feed itself, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to use this marketing, uh, this marketing tool to like, you know, attract new talent because look at how many, you know, leaders we have who are women or look at how many leaders we have who are a marginalized class. It's like, okay, uh, that's a great box to check, but like, you should really be reevaluating like a, how are you supporting your communities as well as the people inside of your organization? Um, that should be maybe the, the emphasis. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. And it comes off as being like, I mean, we're reflecting more on like how performative, like those kinds of decisions are. It's like, are you thinking about it or are you just doing it because you want someone to say like they've yeah. checked that box? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of organizations are finding that their like DEI strategy is failing because Mm -hmm. like they hire people to come in and like teach people how to not be racist and that's just like not how that works jackie knows that from personal experience not to call you out (laughs) but um i think like you know yeah right and i mean like i i think that um we're in a time now where First, there was this sort of like social incentive for organizations to build a DEI strategy. And then it became like this cottage industry where people are paid to specialize in this. And then it's like, 
well, it's almost like a reflection of what's actually sustainable and what actually works and what actually helps people versus like what's greenwashing. Like, what are we doing here to like, you know, kind of have this um, weird uh, marketing tool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we get so, into like diversity optics stuff. We get into like diversity mm-hmm. quotas and uh, it's, it is so performative. And the, the question is like, what, what are we doing to keep people there? What are we doing to actually like help people thrive? And not just members of the BIPOC community or marginalized groups, but like all people so that they can be in spaces together where they can be taken on projects to like yes. do the things that they're there to do, you know? Um, yes, everyone. I mean, like, how can we enhance the experience for everyone? Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I um, those that's sort of a, like an evolving thing too. It's sort of like the it's sort of where we are in our like obsession with certainty, our mm-hmm. being, our needing to categorize people. Um, it's become like a very, uh, it's become a corporate inject, uh, objective. And uh, so I, yeah, again, the work is about like refusing that, you know, mm-hmm. coming back to that realization that like, actually none of this is real. None of this exists. These are all social constructs and we should be emphasizing things that like bring us together as community, mm-hmm. you know, um, rather than just sort, sort of solely placing value on um, identities. Yeah. yeah, and it's both and. and I think like, there are yeah. people, there are both and. people yeah. who, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that Kayla? Or you were gonna say? Yeah, and then I think like we chatted about it before when we talked earlier. Like you, you're feeling liberated living in this like ambiguity, and I kind of want oh, yeah. you to talk a little bit more about like why you feel this way and like how how it reflects on how you go about your every day. Yeah, no, I love that you asked that because um, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about like sort of taking that piece back. Um, There is an artist, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on her name right now, but essentially she does um, portraits of black men uh, who are nude and she intentionally like poses them in ways that like don't show their genitalia because like for so long that piece of a man of a black man's portrait has been like sort of fetishized and been like really um the a more central piece of their identity mm-hmm. in a portrait than anything else and so she poses them in ways that like hide that hide that part and it's taking that piece back from the viewer um and saying like actually there's more to black men than just their dick you know it's like there's uh, there's there's probably a gentle, you know, caring, emotional, complex person in there um, that like the portrait can emphasize more strongly if like they take that piece away. And that's kind of how I feel. Like, I think that like when people de-emphasize things that we're kind of trained to em- emphasize for me, like I'm able to be my more authentic self and, uh, you know, not really care as much about like, trying to fit in with one identity or another, I can, you know, if I, if, if I feel like I want to wear glitter and lipstick and go to a concert with my sister and who's going to affirm and celebrate me, no matter how I look, you know, like a lot of our identities are based on how other people might perceive us. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, today I wore a polo presenting as a male, but I could have showed up in a dress and I think Jackie would have been like, Hey, what's up? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You can show up however you want so, any day. Yeah, exactly. 
So, I mean, like, it comes, so I, I guess, like, there's that reassurance, there's that confidence piece where um, not, what, the art of not giving a fuck, like, th- there's the, there's that piece where, like, you can live your life um, with a level of ambiguity when it comes to your identity that gives you a lot of freedom to experiment. Yeah. And uh, I wish more people tapped into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we kind of, can, cause I feel like that's, cause yes, Liz, I'm like, so in this yes and place, but like, I also feel like I want to talk about the issue of safety because as we know, like there's legislation trying to get passed across the country right now. And like mm-hmm. an overwhelming majority of states that is like anti-trans, anti-gender non-conforming folks. And how do we navigate that? I mean, not that we have to answer that, but how do you think about that wave of hatred and safety? And how does that influence your navigation of the world? Yeah, I mean, like I liken it to the AIDS epidemic and there's a long history of queer people being invisible in, 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 history, in, in our reality, right? Like the government consistently trying to, uh, and, the, and the medical community trying to um, silence and invisibilize an entire population and their struggle due to like, you know, their interests, whatever they may be. Um, this is a nothing burger. So like, it's a lot of, to do about nothing. There's this like weird legislation that's being passed to solve a problem that does not exist. In other words, like, I don't know of a curriculum for kindergartners that teaches them about, you know, trans people or, or, or gay people or like, you know, or whatever. Like, I don't know. I haven't seen that. I don't know if that exists. It's a preventative measure, but what it does is like all of this media coverage that you're seeing, all of this, like, um, all this propaganda about like what age is correct in order to like discuss sex is like um, a reverberating message that will have a rippling effect over the course of history where again, queer people will be othered, you know, as like something to shame them for, you know, as if like there's something wrong with certain types of families, certain types of identities. So it's another power play um, from the, from the dominant class and uh, it's a perpetuation of the status quo because in reality, at any age, any child should be able to, be, to should be able to come to whomever an adult in their life and discuss whatever they want, especially at school or at home. So um, it makes me sad, but it's also like an, an old trick that the right has um, used against LGBTQ folks everywhere throughout history. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel bad for like any three-year-old who's like, cause I mean, it's, it's very difficult to ascertain where our sexual preferences, our sexual orientation, even our gender really derives from. Like, that's why <laughs> there's some talk about, like, I'm a huge Lady Gaga fan. Jackie will tell you, I will spend a lot of money to go see her live. I have every album. I'm a huge, huge fan, but Born This Way is kind of like not the greatest message because it's like, First off, it sounds like an excuse. I can't help it. I was born this way. But also, it's like, we don't know. The jury's out in terms of nature nurture, how we arrive at our sexual orientation, our preferences, all of that. It's like, 
well, I mean, there may be some external influence on me if like, I mean, who knows when I was very young, but to explore those pathways and to feel comfortable and, and um, to be able to have those discussions at a very young age is something that we should really be fostering for children um, and not cutting off those conversations through legislation, especially like involving the government in those conversations is not cool. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just know my hope for you is that you can walk around in the world and whatever you want to wear and however you want to be, yeah. and however you want to behave and be safe. Yeah. You know, 100%. I just yeah. Want the people I love to be safe. And isn't that just like anybody could say that? Like your most conservative, right? The people, totally. it's like everybody wants that. Everybody wants the people that they love to be safe. Yeah. Um, it just for some reason doesn't get extended unilaterally. No. <laughs> it just doesn't get right. like, yeah. yeah. There is a risk factor involved in any way in which, it, so there, I guess I want to mention that there is a risk factor in having that um, sort of celebration or, or affirmation of, um, of your identity and not like if I did wear a dress, I'm putting myself in a position that could very well be you know, more likely to subjected to discrimination than if I'm wearing a polo. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a privilege thing. Um, but like, you know, the, the goal is to live in an environment where like, as Jackie said, everyone, straight people, queer people, everyone can feel, um, can feel an incentive to express themselves in any way, shape or form that they want. If you look at other countries, you know, they, even the way that they dress is so much more colorful, so much more like designed and like, it's an embedded part of like who they are as a people mm-hmm. than anything that the States does. So, I mean, there's sort of this, like, um, it's, it's a, it's a level of conformity and a level of like, uh, I guess, saturation of, of the difference or the nuance in people that like we kind of have defaulted to because it's comfortable, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And what do you think? I'm curious, cause you mentioned privilege and I'm, I'm, curious to hear you say more about that like what do you think is the role of privilege and being able to walk around with a more ambiguous identity and yeah. be safe it's multi-tiered so like say someone uh, uh assaulted me uh because i was wearing a dress i would have the wherewithal to prosecute that person or like find justice for that per- uh, against that person and probably uh, have some retribution um because of my social class mm. and because of my being an educated male living in Western society in Portland, Oregon, you know, mm-hmm. um, in an urban environment, you know, middle, uh, middle class lit life. So like there's different factors that contribute to my privilege. Um, and like, if you're a trans woman of color who was raped and like no one's believing you and like you're desperate for and and you have no other real like ways to employ yourself outside of sex work or something like that there's a difference in circumstances that's pretty significant Mm -hmm. you know when it comes to atrocities made or committed against that piece of the community Mm -hmm. um or that that population in the community so you know it's just Mm -hmm. 
I think like that though when people pl- try to place emphasis on trans women of color, that is the way to go because they are the most vulnerable population in, in our world right now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I kind of want to loop back to some of the things you were talking about before about how nature doesn't have categories, like. Mm-hmm. Nothing in creation has categories. Everything that we categorize and label and name is all part of uh, of a human thing. It's like the human thing we do so that we can control things and manipulate them and like yeah. make sense of them, right? Yep. So why why is it important to realign with nature in the way that we see one another? I love that question. And again, I think you're totally spot on in that modernism brought us this like sort of obsession with categorizing, archiving, defining everything. And it's a way for us to organize nature and profit from it. You know, like that's kind of what we did. We like um, don't grow carrots willy nilly. We like enhance the environment so that we can grow carrots at mass and like send them all over the world and profit from them. Um, so, I mean, like when it comes to our identities, um, or I guess like rejecting that, that, uh, that piece of, of, and like having a category that's so specific, um, that's sort of like a, a heightened sense of conscience, consciousness that I am hoping we're coming to moving forward, you know, especially as we're in such polarized times where like, we're looking for reasons to hate one another, um, I, I, I hope that people can recognize our commonalities as humans, you know, like, um, what are we concerned with protecting our families, making sure that people who we love are safe, you know, our security, our, um, our being able to be, to, to live like productive lives, you know, be our, our happiness factor. Those are like, you know, common goals that I think like kind of transcend things like identity. Um, the, and so, you know, like a lot of times I'll talk about how Bernie Sanders had like a lot of the same objectives as a lot of the conservatives who I read, because like, it's sort of all based in this idea of like, okay, how are you manipulating the truth in order to push a message? You know, it's like, okay, Bernie Sanders has a progressive solution to some of the same problems that are like afflicting um, blue collar workers and poor people across the country. So, and then the, those are the people who ultimately voted in, in a different direction. So, <laughs> I mean, I think like coming to grips with some of those realities, um, you know, it kind of does have this like political resonance too, where we're not ready or like, we're not uh, as a people ready to like recognize or like call into question things that we've known to be true for so long. And when you look at like liberal people, like Democrats, who the overwhelming majority are moderate um, Democrats, it's like, it's very interesting to see like how quick they are to defend Obama, Clinton, a lot of the the Democratic leaders that we've had, um, despite the atrocities that they've committed over the course of time. And then also vote in, you know, Biden, when we should really be looking at a three-party system as the, as a sustainable solution long-term. It's like, okay, like, you know, 
if we're going to screw over someone like Bernie Sanders, then like A, why isn't Bernie running as an independent? And B, like, why don't people consider voting for the Green Party? If you're living in Oregon, I'm sorry, but like your vote doesn't really matter. If you're living in a swing state, mm-hmm. fine, vote for Biden if you think he's going to win. But we should be emphasizing alternative directions outside of just Democrat and Republican. <laughs> you know, like we should, we should make this more complex. So I'm saying that like people default to what's easy and what they know to be true the status quo and that's an alignment with both identity and like it it manifests politically like on a larger mass scale yeah. so well and i think too too so much like when you're talking about the green party and you're talking about the exploitation of the earth like what we are collectively up against in terms of the climate crisis we are in a climate emergency mm-hmm. to me also completely transcends social construct identity yes. yeah. right oh, yeah. um we there's like this urgency that we find a way to move together as a species for yes. our very survival and also for the survival of the beautiful planet that we are visitors on mm-hmm. yeah. right because there is no rhyme or reason in nature nature contradicts itself all the time it's very it's very not something that should be organized or could be organized we like to think that we have it under control but actually like we don't control much at all like what's that line by by uh marina it's like uh, mother nature has a funny way of of ending a fight fight. like yeah i mean at a certain time like we're gonna screw up our planet enough where it's like oh actually it doesn't matter if we're in a civil war in our own country because we can't live here totally Uh, (laughs) well in like covid Mm -hmm. i mean covid is like the perfect example of that right (laughs) totally out of your control it shuts Mm -hmm. everyone up yeah you know very very quickly (laughs) it's amazing how it's amazing how like those you know major battles for political correctness were uh became very quiet over Mm -hmm. the course of the last year you know because of we were preoccupied with and we were sort of also in this common environment or this common uh, circumstance together where you know i don't know maybe people found some common ground with people who they didn't before who knows but i know do you i'm curious from both of you because I've also sensed that, that there is this shift away from criticizing everyone for, you know, like the, the terms that they're using and, and all of that. Like, do you, do you think that there has, like, Neil, you, you know, you mentioned a shift, but do you think that this is something that could linger, that maybe we can be more kind on all sides of the political spectrum? Mm. I don't know. I think people's threshold for kindness is increasingly low. Um, I think people, again, that's kind of a privilege thing, but like I try to find compassion and sympathy for people who make me angry, um, including our recent leaders, Mm -hmm. if you want to call them that. I think like recognizing the humanity in each other is, is is something really, really important and um, emphasizing the skill of empathy is really, really important Um, because like, you know, people are in tough times. They're sick or they are poor or they have like a lot of anxiety pertaining to the future of our country houseless. Mm -hmm. And so 
they don't have the tools right now to like you know oblige people like if they if any in, in any way shape or form um or to like recognize that humanity they're too preoccupied with you know what's the, what they're what they're rightfully i guess distractions so you know i don't have those distractions in my life i don't have you know i don't have a uh, an addiction i don't have i mean we all have addictions but like i don't have like a substance abuse problem i don't have you know any a significant financial issue or like you know and i'm a i'm a middle class white the mixed race male so it's like there's different there's different points in which i am able to empathize with others that i think if you were in a different circumstance it would be much more difficult so mm-hmm. yeah yeah about you kayla um i think that the it's a it's a great notion to think that maybe it became we became a kinder more compassionate during this time but i don't think it was the reality i think that with something that big of covid people that maybe had had and this is generalizing obviously but we're we're up against something hard but had all the things they needed maybe they just were like well i need to make sure that all the time i'm having these things for myself and maybe even thought less of others like mm-hmm. because you're up against something that's like so scary and unknown the the notion is you need to make sure that you're the one who's taken care of and so that's how i, I like sadly like that's how i think more people turn to mm-hmm. is like a more selfish way of thinking and like yeah may- maybe they were scared and like maybe that's just like a coping mechanism to the whole thing that is the unknown of this disease or what it did to the yeah. world but like i think more people became selfish <laughs> mm. i'm gonna be honest as like a defense mechanism yeah yeah mm. i don't know mm-hmm. maybe hopefully not i mean i don't know i i know like even with like I think it divided my personal family even more than it than it had than what I was hoping it would do more than like what Trump did. It was like now there's like another divide, not just politically, but like science related, which was like what <laughs> I didn't yeah. think that this was something that would divide us even more than it already than everything mm-hmm. else that already has. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I know it's so ironic that like the internet was really supposed to connect us more, but we seem to be living more siloed experiences than ever. Like mm-hmm. we, I have such a different reality I feel than people in different parts of this country. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I feel like my perception of the world is so different too. Mm-hmm. So. Hmm. But. What do you think Jackie? Hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, live in a place of like emergence um and so i get really curious about what is invisible that we can't see that is emerging in these destructive times like i agree that there's been some um i mean obviously we can see it all over the news (laughs) like how um scared people are and how that's coming out in such like vitriol and fear and attempts to pass legislation that's incredibly damaging and oppressive wars on the brink if not you know and happening Mm -hmm. and i believe i think in the core of humanity to 
dig for hope. And I think when people are able to find hope, um, they can get really creative uh, about how they begin to reach out and reconnect and innovate and vision and dream and heal. And I do think that those things are happening even though they may be quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sometimes like maybe hopeful to the point of delusion, but, um, you know, we, we I need that like though. Somebody's got to be great. <laughs> someone, has to, someone has to. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it on. And uh, yeah, if people think I'm, think I'm nuts. That's all right. No, maybe I, I don't am. Think you're nuts at all. No. I I have hope. I have hope for people, you know, and like for. I just, you know, I think that I, I have hope in like individuals, um, and then I guess people and in, in mass, it's like a more mm-hmm. difficult challenge. So, totally. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've always called myself like a micro idealist and a macro cynicist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I love that. Can I get that on a t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Living Two or More. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Living Two or More. If you have any comments or questions, we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at Living Two or More Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks. <laughs>